1: Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about workplace culture, life and psychology. Thank you so much for listening. Now, anyone who reads my newsletter about workplace culture, hybrid working, how work is changing, will know how much I adore the work of today's guest. And in fact, I got a two for one because I was pestering Professor Nick Bloom, who's probably the world's leading work from home expert. And he's been doing some work with the company Asana. Asana create a series of uh, workplace tools and they'd thankfully commissioned an interesting piece of research just before the pandemic that they've been running on. And so as well as speaking to Nick, I was also able to speak to Anne Raymonde who's the chief operating officer of Asana two highly qualified guests who are going to talk us through what we're seeing in the latest research about hybrid working, working from home. Some of the research I've shared from Nick is on how companies are changing the expectations of how many days they expect workers to be in the office. I think if you'd gone back two years it was expected that workers would be at home one day a week. Now the average firm is expecting workers will be at home over two days, so two and a bit days a week. And I've shared some of that data on the the show notes. Nick's data is just about the most comprehensive. The Asana... Anatomy of Work Report is also incredibly detailed. And I've shared a link to that in the show notes. So two guests who are the most valuable contributions to what we're trying to understand about work right now. Really interesting conversation. Anne shares something fascinating at the end about how some of the innovation that's happening in workplace culture is really sort of focusing in certain areas. Mind-blowing. Nick, I guess, is surprisingly optimistic for the role of the office. I think you're going to really enjoy this. If you're in a situation right now where you're trying to work out your work's policy, this is a goldmine. Here's Nick Bloom and Anne Raimondi. Look, I I, I couldn't be more grateful for for the guests I've got today. I wonder if you could kick off taking turns, both introducing yourself.
2: Sure. Um, Great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting us. Um, I'm Anne Raimondi. I'm the head of business and CEO for a company called Asana. We are in the work management space.
3: And I'm Nick Bloom. You can hear probably from my accent, I was born in Britain. I'm now a bit of a fake Brit. I live in the US. I've been here for the last 15 years. I'm at Stanford University in California, just down the road, actually, from... Uh, asana's
1: headquarters in san francisco nick any any different times your your story would feel like the the origin story of a movie you spent 20 years specializing in in or you spent a long time specializing in something and then all of a sudden found that the whole world was suddenly interested in your area of expertise so what drove you into Studying working from home and remote working in the first place. And what what set you up on it? <laughs> so, you know, it has a long
3: history. About 20 years ago, I you know, long, long ago, I used to work in McKinsey, the consulting firm. And I got kind of fascinated in differences in management practices. And one thing I noticed that varied a lot was what I call being nice to people practices, maternity leave, paternity leave, work from home. And around that time, my wife had our first kid. She went on maternity leave. And I was kind of like, Her employer was really generous, but I noticed others weren't and thought we should collect some data. So I actually ran a survey back in 2004 and worked from home. The numbers were low, depressingly low, but there's a lot of spread. And ever since then, I've been collecting information. But as you said, no one was that excited until, of course, March 2020. And this the world went mad about working from home. And it's just the topic that everyone is talking about now.
1: I love that. I think I read you say uh, somewhere that you would tried to put a conference together on this a few years ago and and you struggled to fill the day's agenda just because there weren't a lot of people in the field. Yes,
3: <laughs> we did try to put a conference. We couldn't even get enough good papers that submitted. And one of the, I mean, on topic, one of the presenters refused to turn up and said they want to do it remote. And we're like, you know, I don't know whether to say yes or no. I mean, what, <laughs> how, what do you say to that? But now I'm setting up, you know, with a whole bunch of researchers you know regular work from home conferences there's an amazing amount of data you know asana has been involved there's an amazing amount of data and findings that are coming out that i think are critically useful for guiding firms organizations
1: going forwards and do you want to give us a perspective about how asana has t- teamed up with nick and, and your role in researching this new way of working right now
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been really grateful to partner with Nick. We just published our third annual Anatomy of Work Index, which is a global survey of over 10,000 knowledge workers. And so what's interesting about this is we started it before the pandemic. So we've actually been able to see the trends over the last three years. We think of you know 2020 really as like the acceleration of the digital transformation, partly again, given the pandemic, right? Companies had to make that shift um, to distributed work and, and deal with all that disruption. The survey in 2021 saw a lot of the actual adjustment to digital work and what was critical to help employees stay engaged, but also how employees were spending their time. And then the most recent report that came out, we think of the themes as really the rise of the agile workplace and that companies and employees are now seeing that the world ahead is going to be this hybrid model, like things have shifted. But some of the data through the research that we pay a lot of attention to is uh, for knowledge workers, we still see that the majority of their time, 60% they self-report is spent on work about work, not the skilled work that they were hired to do. And that trend continues year over year. Um, And then in particular, the difference between last year and this year is there's been slight improvements in percentage of time um, that people say they're spending on skilled work but there's been a 36% decrease in time spent on strategic work.
1: I think this is really critical. This is probably a terminology that people aren't necessarily familiar with. And so as I understand it, skilled work, work, as I I see, it, and please clarify, specifically if someone is brought in to be a marketer, then it's them creating marketing. If someone's been brought in to be a graphic designer or a coder, it's it's them doing that, and you're say, broadly saying that two thirds of people work is them doing the work about work, which is the communication, the meetings. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. Status reports, tracking down where information is. It's all the things that take them away from that the craft of what they you know, are hired to do.
1: Wow. I mean, you can't change what you can't measure, I guess, but even the realization of that strikes me that we've got a long way to go.
2: Definitely. I think it goes to, um, for organizations and leaders and, and, you know, Nick spends a lot of time on this is like, how, um, how are we helping employees prioritize their time? How do they know what matters? What doesn't matter? How do we help them reduce the meeting load, reduce the, like, trying to switch between apps, reduce the, oh, by the time I do the status report, the information is already outdated, right? All of that. Um, And the reason to do that certainly is to shift that time to what we want them to come and do, you know, towards the purpose of the company. But all of that um, work about work is also contributing to burnout. In the survey, across all generations, people are saying that they're experiencing burnout. And Gen Z in particular is saying that they're experiencing um, also like imposter syndrome and this belief that burnout is a necessary part of success in the modern world. workforce and you know and and those are alarming i think as leaders i think we should really pay attention to that because um it's becoming you know pervasive that this idea of oh in order to move ahead in order to be successful there's there's sort of this cost of doing business
1: nick just looking at your work so, so you've you've seen this remarkable transformation over the last two years and I guess the danger of human beings is that we we get this biased perspective that we think we're at the end of the story. We think, okay, we've switched to a bit of hybrid working and, and that's the new equilibrium that's going to stay. My instinct, but, and I guess from the data, that suggests that's possibly not the case. Where do you, In fact, there was some, something beautiful in one of the charts that, of yours that I shared a couple of weeks ago on my newsletter, which was this sort of trajectory that if you asked employers... Two years ago, how many days from home they expected? Most of them would sort of reluctantly grumble one, one and a quarter, one and a half. Now we seem to be heading, well, it's almost a straight line. Where do you think this is going to end up? So firstly, this is like, you know, a long journey. I think we're we're not
3: near the end. It feels like if you watch Lord of the Rings, you know, like in the halfway through the first episode at this point, maybe. but So just to set the scene. We are now finally returning to the office or have returned to the office, but no one really knows exactly how hybrid is going to work out. So as Anne said, I think it's pretty critical to get it organized. So why don't I tell you the short run and then the long run? So in the short run, if it were my firm and what I talked to, I I talked to hundreds of organizations and companies, the critical thing is just to be organized about hybrid. So you have folks back, say, three days a week in the office, two days a week at home. But if you ask people why they want to come to the office, They don't want to come in for the free bagels or the ping pong table. They basically want to come in to see their colleagues and co-workers. So that means, effectively, you're going to have to say, look, as an organization, we're going to schedule by team or by the whole company to come in on the same three days. And so when you're in the office, you're in together. When you're out of office, you know, you're doing quiet time. That's kind of 2022. I think 2023, 2024 is going to get more sophisticated. You know, we're going to want to do things like make use of space. So one of the questions I get asked a lot by businesses, in particular, I've been working with the Bank of England, surveying thousands of firms in the UK and also the the Central Bank in the US, several thousand American companies. In the short run, they're not saving much space. They're kind of frustrated. They're saying, look, we're not saving space. We're basically at the same footprint as before. In the longer run, I think we also want to save space. But to do that, we've got to be even smarter. We've got to think about scheduling. So like Team A, you guys want to come in together. But we're going to suggest you come in on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Team B, Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So short run, this mid part of the process is returning to the office and making sure we're in on the same days. Longer run is getting more sophisticated and scheduling teams together and thinking about
0: you
1: know, how, how we make sure we're in together, but we use our space better. It's really interesting that you raised that because one of the things that I'm observing with the companies that I deal with is that either they've introduced this autocratic four days, three days a week system. And, you know, we've seen a number of firms sort of publicly announce their systems. Or they're in a fearful state where they they're witnessing that their workers have got this sort of burgeoning autonomy, the self-determination, and they're saying, well, look, we want you in a certain number of days, but you choose those days. But the curse of that is that people are finding that every day is a Zoom day. Every day is a you know, I, I chatted to someone from Slack last week and and their philosophy about all of this is anytime one person is on a screen, everyone has to go to the screen. So you end up with a situation where it becomes the lowest common denominator that as soon as one person's working remote, every ver- meeting becomes vertical. And so people are expressing to me, okay, that we've got this autonomy. People are choosing which days they want to work in the office. But the end result of that is that I'm traveling to the office. I'm traveling 20, 30 miles. I'm sitting down and I'm sitting with headphones on doing video calls all day. Now, what you're describing is something which I guess pushes back against that autonomy to some extent and says actually this freedom in coordination to some extent you you achieve your freedom by getting those things balanced what's your perspective on where that's going to net out because some firms appear fearful of trying to drop a few structures and coordination in right now
3: you're completely correct and i think coordination is going to win out you know it feels like right now for anyone that's had you know kids that are kind of 10 to 12 year olds they often want to stay up all night but then once they've done it, they're like, oh, that was a bad idea. I feel terrible. And, you know, the rest of the day's wiped out. So I think this autonomy thing, employees think maybe that they want this, and there's definite benefits for for employees. But the problem is if you have this autonomy system, when you come into the office, you pay the price, and you pay a big price, which is you spend much of the day on Zoom. The office is low energy. You're like, why am I here? Why have I commuted? So in survey data, we find that overwhelmingly employees say, the reason they come in is to be with colleagues. They want to come in the same day as their colleagues. So I'm pretty confident that, you know, this feels like being the bad guy, to be honest. But, you know, I think managers have to take a lead. And they should be saying, as the Asana does, as Apple, a lot of well-known companies do, you guys, you're going to come in either at the team level, or the division or the company level. Let's say Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We're all going to come in. We're going to be together. We have all our meetings and events and trainings, etc. There. There'll there be three exhaustingly social days. And let's say, you know, the two work from home days, say Monday, Friday, go home, do quiet work, do deep work, work on your own. And to point out why I'm kind of confident this is where it will end up is just think about pre-pandemic. So it's pre-pandemic. We worked 40 hours a week, typically in the office, maybe 50. But you, no, I never heard of a company that said, look, you can work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Or you can work 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. It just doesn't happen. Like before the pandemic, everyone said basically we're gonna coordinate on Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., because you wanna be in at the same time. And so that's where I think we're gonna end up post pandemic.
2: And to follow on to Nick's point, I think it is uh, the responsibility of managers and leaders to give the context on why. Um, So and create those opportunities that when people come in and they're together, that that time is spent well, you know, back to the point in the study that we saw this year of like a decrease in strategic time. If leaders and managers are pointing that out and saying, hey, when you're together in the office, these are the kinds of experiences and the things that we want to support because they're better done together. And then on those days that are designated work from home days, for example, at Asana, we generally have a no meeting Wednesday policy, certainly no internal meetings. Um, and so I think that intent and the context can go a long way for leaders to overcome the fear of like, oh, we're prescribing something, but rather like we're giving our teams context of why and the experience we want to create. I love how Nick talks about like, this is what's you know likely happening in 2022. And then things will evolve. I, I do think um, sharing with employees, hey, we want to learn and get feedback as we go through these experiences. And that'll help evolve what we do going forward can also lessen the like, oh, we're getting the decision perfect. You know, they there is still so much uncertainty, and if everyone goes into it with a learning mindset, I think people will get creative, You know, see what's working, see what's not, and employees ideally will also feel agency in helping to create the experience.
1: Talk, talk to me a little bit more about your experience with the meeting-free days, because obviously this is something that… I think for the first time, we've realized that we can experiment with the way we're working. I've loved seeing the debate about meeting three days that's just starting to emerge. Now, look, a lot of leaders are fearful because they're just like, hang on. Firstly, you've told me I'm not going to see my team two or three days a week. Now you're telling me I can't summon them to sit in front of me on a... Google Hangout. How how on earth is this going to work? And so, like, I'm, I'm interested in your experience in an org- as an organization that studies this thing, that creates tools, but also is is trying these things out as as a firm. How, how have meeting free days gone?
2: For the most part, for us, they've gone well. I think what it does is it it sets some expectations, and and I think we're big believers that sort of setting those expectations, communicating clearly about the expectations goes a long way. So this doesn't mean meetings don't happen on Wednesdays, but they're an exception. And that means that people need to have a conversation about that and why. And so if a manager is going to set up a meeting on a Wednesday, we we have a term called like recontracting, right? I Then I'm going to ask permission. I'm going to give reason of, hey, this is why I want to make an exception. And at 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 a minimum, it makes people pause and sort of think about, is this, you know, is this important enough? But it also makes sure that employees are respected and treated with respect of, hey, your time matters, right? You're, we brought you here to do all the unique work um, that only you can do. And so disrupting that with lots of meetings is actually counter to that. Um, and so we're going to respect your time. And if we're going to ask you to join a meeting on a day we've designated as a no meeting day, we've got to have a good reason for that. And we're going to, you know, reset expectations.
1: It's impossible not to to think, look, you know, we've, we've been given permission to some extent to question the way that we're doing things. And it's, it's posed a whole load of new questions. I saw... I guess, a, a, a peer of yours, um, Nick, uh, Professor Rav Chowdhury at Harvard Business School. And and his philosophy, as long as as far as I could tell it, is that actually we're moving to firms being remote by default, largely because top talent seem to be the category of, of employees who are setting the standards and top talent are telling organisations that they want to have far more flexibility than working two days a week at home do you think there's a chance that we're going to actually keep going on this trajectory and and we are going to end up with something very different? And to some extent then, is our mental model bonding us to the office actually a constraining factor right now? I personally like hybrid. Just to be clear, the upsides of hybrid is there's pretty
3: strong evidence that in-person is good for a couple of things. One is Creativity. So it's much easier, you know, to sit around a coffee table or over lunch or in a meeting room and kind of bounce ideas around than it is over Zoom. And the other is just building culture. So you think about what happens when you go in, you chat to your colleagues, you know a bit about their lives, you know, what's going on. So for most organizations, to be honest, I've talked to probably hundreds and hundreds of organizations, UK, US, around the world, across a lot of sectors. The only ones I know that are going fully remote are tech firms and a few small startups. So for tech firms, you know, there's some reasons you might want to go fully remote, but outside of that sector, I just don't come across it. So it is true that remote is building, but if it were my firm, I would be very nervous of going fully remote. You can do it. So the upsides are pretty clear. You A, saving a lot of office costs, and B, you can hire around the world. So those are two big benefits. It basically reduces your cost per hour. But the big downsides is probably it's much harder to have culture, creativity, bonding, you know. So, Sure, but it's highly risky. I would say anyone for anyone listening, if you like remote, do it at the edges. So rather than do three two, try two three. If you like that, go to one four. You know, I would not get rid of the office. It's very. I mean, if you don't have an office now because you've got rid of it during COVID, that's totally different. So maybe, and if it's fully remote, it's working. But there are some clear upsides about doing face to face. We just don't need to do that five days a week.
1: It's it's just interesting though because because culture is one of these words that's so. Um, vague and all-encompassing. Like, you know, we, people, I, I chatted to someone today who, uh, dialed into a call for, with, uh, with me from his private office in a consultancy firm, telling me how important it was for his young employees to be in the office for culture. And, uh, And, you know, it was just an interesting thing where it's almost like diagnosing what he wanted everyone else to experience while not experiencing it himself. And it just sort of posed an interesting challenge that actually culture has been kind of a happy Accident a, and a happy byproduct of some of the ways we 've been working before you know you sling enough young people in an office and you know th- there's enough bars nearby afterwards they they go and have a drink afterwards and they, you know before you know it a couple of years later you 've got a culture has felt like the accident that often <laughs> happened um or you know you take people away on a conference again, throw merriment at it and they end up with a culture. It it felt very accidental. And quite often I say to firms, how do you build your culture? And there's certainly nothing like a plan that, that helps construct it. And I just wonder if, you know, by the very fact we're saying we want people in the office for culture, but if there's no degree of coordination, that culture seems to have very limited ways to be built. I just wonder if employees, top talent is going to say, well, look, you've told me to come into the office for culture. It wasn't there. I've decided that, you know, I I want to work more days from home. I I just wonder if we are going to deconstruct these things a little bit more.
2: So if this helps, at Asana, the way we think about building culture is similar to how we think about building product that you have to have intent behind it, right? What What is the experience you're trying to design for your employees? Just like what's the product you're trying to design for your customers? How, you, how are you going to measure if that culture is working or not working? And then how are you going to iterate on that and improve that? And we think it's much more than like, a bunch of people together and you know going to hang out after work and much more around what are the shared values, what are the shared behaviors um, that matter, especially for teamwork. How do we expect people to co-create and build things together? How do we expect people to communicate well? Um, and how we expect people to treat one another. And so so being those moments together, whether that's in an office, there's some all remote companies that specifically every quarter bring everybody physically together. Those in-person moments really are about how you then reiterate and reward those values and behaviors that matter to the company Um, because in the end, we are social beings and those cues and that reinforcement and the mentoring and the feedback are often much harder in remote You know, we've certainly seen that managers and employees have struggled with performance feedback when it's all remote. Um, People walk away with vastly different understandings of what's working and what doesn't when they're just talking to each other on a screen versus being able to have those constructive or challenging conversations in person. So we sort of really think about, like, the intention behind the culture, right? The
1: the really interesting thing about that is that I think almost, um, and it's it's a realisation I've I've only sort of started drawing on in the last few weeks, is that I think there's a a transatlantic difference in the way we think about cultures. Because, you know, the way you describe it there is beautifully uh, articulating the operating system of the organisation. It's like saying understanding the rules, the norms, the, the spirit of it, I saw uh, Reed Hastings talking about the culture at Netflix. And he was very much, you know, he articulated very clearly, uh, culture is what gets rewarded, what gets punished. Now, I think if you asked a British person or a European, what culture is, culture is the fizz in the drink. Culture is the connection, the rapport, the camaraderie, the sense of togetherness, the sense of unity. And I I wonder if there's a difference in that. Now, as a consequence, I've witnessed a lot of people in Western Europe, when they talk about culture, they're like, oh, you know, the vibe, you you know, that the party hasn't got the punch to it that it used to have. Whereas when I hear North Americans, it's often like, well, we we just need to lay down the playbook of what the culture is. I mean, Nick, you'd be the perfect person actually to 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 speculate on this as someone who's lived uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Do you think there is a a difference in the way we think about those things? It's funny. I hadn't thought about that, but yes, I think you're about
3: right. I mean, you know, we know that Americans are incredibly efficient. Just to be an economist here, their GDP per capita is about twenty percent above the Brits, and you know, they're just very efficient and deliberate. Silicon Valley is full of kick-ass super organized you know companies i i want to twist it a bit the thing i meant by culture and i was thinking through this and firms talk a lot about and mention is mentoring so you're right that there's hanging out after work for drinks a lot of what i think people really want is mentoring just to give you examples i have a student of mine she went to work for a you know a big tech firm and she said she was fully remote for the first year and a half because she joined during the pandemic she said she didn't even know stuff like when to start work like, you don't figure out how, when do people leave work and what's a reasonable lunch break. And said there's a lot of stuff she was doing on her computer. Turned out when she screen shared with a colleague, they're like, are you nuts? This is totally inefficient. And like, but no one had stood next to her. So there's a whole bunch of learning and mentoring that's just much better in person. Not all of it, but I think, and you're right. I mean, I'm totally aligned with Anna. It's about, and as you said earlier, it's about getting people in on the same three days. It's not randomly going to happen if you're in the yeah. office on a Zoom call. You don't absorb it from the walls and the carpet you get it from basically being around other people and drinks after work is fine but it's probably not the primary way of doing it
1: it's just really interesting that you you've sort of you've both been uh, strong advocates for hybrid and you know i guess you the probably the net promoter score on hybrid right now is He's probably mixed, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who are trying hybrid right now. And maybe it's because it's this flawed version of hybrid that we're talking about, but a lot of people are trying hybrid and they're thinking, I used to commute from my sofa to, to my kitchen table or whatever it was. Now I'm spending 15 pounds, uh, a day sort of having to, to do this, and I just don't see the benefit of it. Have we learned anything from around the world about sort of different countries? And obviously, COVID wasn't evenly distributed in the way it worked. Has there, have there been any tests that have given us perspective of actually different approaches seem to have worked better than others? Well, I mean, I, I just finished
3: a randomized control trial in China. There's one example of this. So it's a trip.com. They're one of the world's big three travel agents, and the chairman and founding CEO was my student long ago. And so he was interested in hybrid, and basically they took 1,600 coders, engineers, marketing folks, and they just randomized them. So if you have an even birthday, you had to stay in the office five days a week. You had an odd birthday. You got to work from home on Wednesday and Friday, and they tracked them for six months. The question is, what happens? And they found that performance was flat, no difference between them on promotions, a bunch of measures. But the hybrid folks, their quit rates were down thirty-five percent and their work life balance and job satisfaction scores were way up. And so at the end of it, the firm said, This is fantastic. We're basically we're getting like way happier employees, far less quitting for free. It's not doing anything on productivity. So they rolled it out to the entire company. So that's China. Interestingly enough, that's kind of rare in China. It's picked up by the Chinese media. And I think Alibaba is following on. So, you know, the UK, US is pretty advanced on hybrid, Northern Europe. A lot of the Japan, Asia is a bit behind, but I think they're all heading there. I should also say, by the way, hybrid is less radical than we think, because if you think of what happened pre-pandemic, we already had you know, computers and you know, smartphones. We're already, honestly, most professionals and managers were doing some time every day after work in the evenings, a bit on the weekend. We're just being, as Anne said, a bit more organized about it. We're saying, look, let's kind of just reorganize life a little bit and just only come in three days a week, but make them intensely connected and social and let's you know save 60 70 minutes on those other two days each day and work from home we were doing this before why not just be more organized so i don't think it's that radical i think it's part of a continuation honestly for those of us that have worked you know when i started work in 1996 there were no smartphones when you got home there was no computers that was it it's the end of the day that's just not true in 2019 and
1: hybrids are kind of a continuation it's interesting then because if we were to if we would say then the principal benefits of hybrid working is actually it's worker satisfaction rather than productivity the provocation for good firms might be to say, okay, having witnessed that we can enhance worker satisfaction with small changes, what could we do to enhance to transform productivity on the core measure i'm just really struck by the thing that Anne said about so much work is work about work and and you immediately start wondering if um, at, at Structuring of work around teams might be a, a dysfunctional way of, of working. Can people have more individual responsibility and, and less codependencies? I wonder if that's something we could experiment with. Or are there other tools that are going to allow, allow us to work in a different way? I guess, Anne, you know, you're, you're, uh, you've got a good perspective on this. What, what would your take be?
2: Um, what we see is that it's, it's actually being intentional about what is synchronous work versus what is asynchronous work and then the channels for that. I think something that many teams experienced, especially during the pandemic, is the shift to remote actually meant a lot of shift to um, communication tools as a way to coordinate, right? All of a sudden, you, you couldn't see someone in person and have a quick conversation. So everything shifted either to messaging or to, you know, video conferencing. But that, that wasn't that actually didn't necessarily make things better. And in many ways, it made things worse because of the interruptions of, okay, where am I supposed to be checking and responding right away now to email, to chat, or every kind of quick check-in became a 30-minute Zoom. What we see is companies and teams that have higher productivity and higher satisfaction are very good about what work is done asynchronously, what work is done synchronously. So if we're going to get together in a meeting, the meeting has purpose, it has an intent, it has an agenda, it has follow-up items. And then if other things can be done asynchronously. And that actually is more inclusive because different team members process information in different ways. And so then having a consistent place where people know who's doing what by when they know they can trust the information in it then starts to also decrease the anxiety of oh did I check the right thing at the right time oh if I don't attend that meeting will I be out of touch with what matters to my team and company
1: to what extent have the benefits of the last two years been just us working more you know we've we've touched on burnout earlier on in in any of i guess in in your data nick is have, have we seen the working days become longer i hear it all the time in fact microsoft data says i think that working days grown by 45 minutes a day is this is this the reason why actually it's, it's we've we've bought a false deal here that you know as, as workers we've been hoodwinked into just working more. Well, it's a, it's a good question as to what you call work.
3: Okay, so it is true from the Microsoft data that you see messaging, emails, stuff like this is like spread out. So, you know, we're tickling into the evenings, there's this claim of a triple hump, the mm. third hump, morning, afternoon. Yeah, third piece, yeah. So on that side, it looks like we're working more. On the other side, to be clear, every day we work from home, we save about 70 minutes. So the average Brit, as well as the average American, commute to about 60 minutes a day. So you save that if you work from home. You also, you probably don't want to hear this, but you spend 10 minutes less getting ready when you work from home than if you go into the office. So you can guess what might get cut when we see it. So that's 70 minutes a day. That's a lot of time. So if you're telling me that in our Soviet HBC, people spend 30 of those 70 or more work and 40 they bank. So that kind of matches roughly the Microsoft data. So this is in a sense, depends how you saw your commute. You know, I used to commute in London for many years and it was just a horror on the tube you know you're forced into someone else's armpit on some nasty subway train well i don't really mind giving that up and i'm happy to spend a bit of the time working and a bit of the time on you know leisure and exercise and stuff um in the long run how this works out will be you know effectively what people want if everyone wants to use most of their saved time on leisure then uh, you know employers are going to offer it so actually i don't think it's a bad thing we're working a bit more it's what you'd expect i think the key thing is we've also got more time to ourselves so actually, I think it's just a win-win because we've chopped out something that people loathe. If you did these, um, Richard Layard used to be at the LSE. Lord Layard did these happiness surveys. And it turns out the thing people hate most in their day is commuting. The thing that makes people most unhappy of all. And so we've just ripped out 70 minutes, basically, or 60 minutes of commute a day. And we split it roughly with our employees.
1: I think thing number two in Richard Layard's work was time with their boss. So, it's all, so, uh, so, uh, so absolutely traveling in and then having a one-to-one with your boss is just about the worst,
3: exactly, week, yes.
1: the, the worst use of time. And the secret of great research, I guess to some extent is having consistency. You so you could go back. I mean, who the, who the hell am I telling you the secret about good research? Hang on. <laughs> before, <laughs> before I get too caught up in this. But the secret of good research is questions that are repeatable so you can go back and measure them over time. But also trying to anticipate what we need to be looking out for. What are you looking out for, Nick? Correct me on what the secret of good research is as well. No, no, you're totally right. I mean, like, much like Asana is, you know, very fortunate to have been doing the anatomy
3: of work before the pandemic. It was like a goldmine. mine. I I was extremely lucky. I totally did not see that. You know, no one I don't think would have seen the pandemic. Well, a few people saw the pandemic coming. But, you know, I I was happy to be, happened to be working on working from home. And it was just fortunate I'd started that. I think I'm looking to big changes in society. So a few things. One is what I call the donut effect. So for London, Glasgow, Manchester, same in New York, San Francisco, it's very clear that people are leaving city centers to move out to the suburbs. So if you're only going to come into work, say, two days a week, you don't need to live in the center of town. You can move out to the suburbs. We see that en masse. It's changing house prices. So if you owned a house in the suburbs of a big city, you've done really well. If you owned in a flat in the center, you've not done so well. That's one thing. Another thing is about labor supply. I'm kind of excited about the ability of work from home to let older workers, people with young kids, people that may be disabled, to work in a way they didn't before. Another thing that's kind of great is... The technology for this is changing all the time. So you know, when I started work on working from home twenty years ago, it was like over a telephone, uh, no Zoom, you know, no Zoom or Teams or anything, and there was no clouds, there's no file sharing. You'd emailing stuff or sending, you know, sending memory sticks in the mail. I mean, it seems so crazy. And tech is getting a lot better. And because work from home's exploded, it's about to get a lot better really quickly. So we've been scraping the U.S. patent and trademark office to look at new patents coming out each month. There are thousands of them. Turns out the share that mentioned remote work and working from home is about 1% running up to the pandemic. As soon as the pandemic starts, it starts climbing and climbing and climbing. So you know the next five or 10 years are really exciting. If I was a firm, I wouldn't make a big long-run real estate investment, assuming now is going to be what it's going to be in 10 years. Because in 10 years, we'll have like it's hard to say what, but it would be great. I mean, like VR and holograms and fantastic AV, and I mean, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's ter- people are terrible at predicting the future in terms of individual innovations, but I think it's safe to say it will be a lot easier. Something to really we fascinating, I think, is seeing
2: you know Gen Z entrepreneurs, especially in Silicon Valley, who are in working in the collaboration space. Many of them, their thesis is that. Their generation grew up playing games together, multiplayer games. And in many of those worlds, they kind of, it's team play, right? And they've created things together and that that's going to be part of the future of work. So if you think about all the kids and teenagers on Roblox today and building together, um, they're going to have an expectation that that's what work looks like, like a lot more play. So I I think there's going to be some interesting things in that field for us to pay attention to. and. I actually personally am excited about that because more fun and more laughter and more gameplay and work could could actually improve creativity and productivity.
1: I love that. I love that. You know, the idea that sort of things are created in the moment about sort of frank, honest discourse amongst people that maybe he's, he's focused on an object and then like really interesting. Actually it just sets off a whole line of thinking, doesn't it? As so as you think that. I've loved our conversation today. I mean, look, truly fascinating. And it's such a valuable perspective. So many firms right now are wrestling with these things. And, and you know, there's an unfortunate consequence of the way that work's constructed that you've often got Gen X bosses making decisions f- for gen z's and for millennials and and you know, we're going to get a degree of disconnection because of that generational um preference i think so you know having data i think is so helpful i always find I, I, I use NICS data all the time, but I always find showing that data to someone saying, look, you might feel that this is objectively right. I want to show you the direction we're going, the trends. I think, you know, it's, um, look, all of this data is, is such a gift. Thank you so much. No, great. thanks. Great.
2: Thank you. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks so much.
1: Thank you to Anna and Nick. I'm so immensely grateful for the, for the opportunity to speak to them that they must get pestered all the time from people doing podcasts. So to do something with a podcast in the UK is a great gift of them. Like I say, if you liked any of that, uh, you'll find it details of it in the show notes, but also you'll find it in the newsletter that goes out at the same time as this podcast. You can find that at the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Immensely grateful for the feedback that everyone gives me on on the recent episodes, really. I've got some great episodes coming up. If you're interested in workplace culture, next week I'm featuring a chat with one of the leading experts in the world. Daniel Coyle wrote The Culture Code, and he's got a new book out called The Culture Code Playbook. I'm going to be going into detail with him about right now, what could any company do to revive their culture? That is a great conversation. After that, I've got some more data coming up from the Future Forum, which is this organisation uh, created by Slack to try and track what's going on. And um, I'm tracking down another couple of great interviews. So I do hope you'll be able to subscribe, maybe leave some feedback. I never, I literally never ask for that, but uh, leave a podcast review and I uh, look forward to seeing you again. See you next time.